Hello people, this is Aram. Before we get started this week, we have another shout out to BattleBards. BattleBards delivers premium audio for all of your RPG tabletop needs. And this week, we're gonna talk about combat. They have blunt weapons, edged weapons, arrows, weapon breaks for critical fails, spell sounds, even a full-out goblin assault. So if you want your RPG tabletop to sound like God's Fall, check out BattleBards.com. My name is Aram Vartian. I'm the Dungeon Master for God's Fall, and welcome back for episode 18, our first mailbag. Before our last session, I asked the players a few of the questions we've received that were directed toward the group. We're going to hear those first, followed by the questions that pertain more to DMing or the story. Next week, we will be back with another actual play podcast, and if all goes well, we should be able to keep enough content coming in to get us through the end of season one. Before we start, I want to thank all of you who not only wrote in questions, but took the time to say some very kind things about God's Fall. It was a pleasure to read all of them, and it is heartening to know that so many of you are as into the story as we are. A lot of you asked similar questions, so some of these I'll be reading verbatim, and some of them are a summary of several questions asked along the same theme. We're going to start with a roundtable discussion we had before our last session and follow up with some of the questions you directed towards the DM side of the screen. I'll also pop in on my roommate Doug to get some more insight on his character Doro Not and his thoughts about God's Fall in general. Uh, how were you introduced into the D&D world? How did you get, let's actually talk about how you got roped into yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you just answered the question. Yeah. I was roped in. <laughs> <laughs> this guy I knew for like a decade is like, hey, I'm doing this thing and I think you might be interested in it. And then I allowed myself to be seduced into ludicrousness. I knew you'd be good. That's why I wanted you in. I knew, I, I knew you'd be good. I suspected you'd have fun. I feel badly that I'm not as like super into it as people who listen no, to it a little bit. That actually makes me so happy. Um, I mean, it's so funny that so many people are so much more into it than you are and you're actually playing it. I mean, it's fine. Yeah. I mean, you do a good job. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. But I think we all do a good job. My friend is like, hey, try this thing. And I'm up for trying just about anything at least once. Into D&D in general, or? Oh, well, you know, is that what you said? Yeah, sorry, D&D. How'd you get introduced into D&D? Um, I've always known about it, never really had an inkling toward it, but uh, I played Warhammer 40,000 and Warhammer Fantasy, um, and I wanted more out of the game. It just felt less and less like a role-playing game and more of a tabletop tournament game. So I, I went on Twitch TV, and they had a couple of really good live gamers on there, and really got interested into it, and, Bought the player's handbook, studied it, and here I am. Found a Rom's post saying that he needs a, a character for a, a D&D group. And I was like, oh, cool, I'll, he's close, I'll, tech, you know, I'll, I'll hit him an email. And the first thing he said is, are you comfortable with being on a podcast? And I went, oh, yeah, sure, it's not gonna, no one's going to listen to it, cool, whatever. <laughs> and then 15 episodes later, I see we're you know, 8,000 viewers a, a day. And, a week. 8,000 viewers a week. Okay, yeah. uh, a week. Okay. We're doing 8,000 viewers a day. We're doing really well. <laughs> oh, well. 
But yeah, so me and Ram just started talking, and I really liked what he was saying about his campaign. It really felt like it was more of a, a natural role-playing instead of, you know, by the books, st- you know, statistics and dungeon delving and stuff like that. It felt like something, like something I could really get into and journey into instead of just, you know, looking at a book all day. So my understanding then of this, just based on that and things that you have said, is that this is not typical. No. Oh this no! This is not how Dungeons and Dragons normally functions. No. No. Well, well, let's. Uh, okay. No, no, it's not. Okay, the majority of people play. No, I'm not going to argue. I just don't want to disparage. <laughs> right. The, okay. I would say I, that, I, it's not necessarily disparaging or yeah. not. It's just it is. From well, again, I don't atypical. know. I mean, yeah. The majority of people a, play modules. That, in fact, the majority yeah. of podcasts are modules, and modules are official campaigns that are written and put out like by the community. Company. What? I'm sorry? Like they yes. use on community. Right, like they use on community. Was, exactly like they use on community. Exactly. They use a module, yeah. yeah. So that's how most games are run. So, but I have a question about sure. the module. Presumably there, you know, there's an A and a Z, and you're getting from A to Z. There's two types. There are modules that they're writing now, especially with like Prince of Apocalypse and everything, where it's huge, long campaign arcs like we're doing, right? But there's also modules where it's like, here's a one-shot written kind of, Neutrally enough, you could add to any campaign. Here's just an event that happens within it. So there's two types of them. Okay. Right. That said, it depends on the, the storyteller or dungeon master. I've played in some really great games. You know, Correct. That it really depends on who's you know. It also depends on the game. And also the players and the game. It's a perfect example of this. If it's a Kinsey scale of role playing, right? Oh yeah, it's I like perf- that. The Kinsey yeah. scale of role playing. <laughs> if it's a Kinsey scale of role playing, this is on the far left. This is about much. Yeah, and it's role-playing, yeah. very little yeah, matters. Bit. Well, back when I first started playing, I started playing in 2nd edition, which was 1999, 2000, like, real, real young. Olden times. Yeah, well, I was eight, eight or nine. No, you were not. Yeah. I was... Yeah, he's he's really young. You didn't know that? Oh, yeah, my God. Yeah. I, yeah. I was born in... The beard seven. throws you off, doesn't it? Seven? Yeah. I graduated yeah. from college in 2000. Yeah. I was... Wait, wait, wait. wait. When did you graduate high school? What was 2000. that? 2000. Oh, no, I graduated high school in 2005. 2005! Yeah, yeah, I graduated... Yeah. I would have graduated in 1994. <laughs> yeah, I graduated in 96 from Me high too. school. Yep. Yeah. From high you school. are a yeah. babe. No, I always yeah. forget it, too. Like, I know. We have we talked about this several Every times, and I look time. at you, and I'm like, oh, he's 32. You know? But you're... No, no, that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could be that thing, but whatever. Yeah. No, because uh, you'll look 32 for the next 20 years. Yeah. That's exactly. That's what ends up happening. So that's the far left end, (laughs) right? Now the far right end is what Michael ran right before this, which would be Vampire. I think Vampire: The Masquerade is the typical example of an all RP game. They even have rules where they basically take out the bare bones. Yeah, and they say don't really follow the rules because that's so stupid to do. Use it whenever you have to keep like you know uh, score, I suppose. And then the bare bone rules that they do have. They say, if you don't even want to use those, here's this whole LARPing thing you can do where you basically, it's like rock, paper, scissors, because fuck <laughs> the rules, it's all about acting. Yeah. So that would be the other end of it. And we played that right before this game, actually. And that game influenced a lot of this game. Yeah. Because one of the things that it does is every single character has a prelude. So everyone plays out a one-on-one turning into a vampire. So I adopted that for you guys to, to, to play one-on-ones into this game. I grew up in Ohio in a township of less than like 15,000 people. So people that like video games were further than far in between. I got with one of the best basketball players in high school who's super popular stuff, would never talk to each other. 
But then one day, because we played Command and Conquer yes. at a time together. Um, That's right good. alert. Right alert. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> uh, because we played that all the time together. Uh, he was like, yeah, yeah. he was like, PC. I've been reading about this 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 new game, and I want to I wanted to bring you and one of my other friends into it. I want to see if we can like play it because and I'm like, what is it? Dungeons and Dragons. So he basically lets me borrow one of his player's handbooks and says, well, put whatever character you want. And I stupidly just try to make myself because I don't know what to play. I don't understand what this game is, so I just mm -hmm. make myself as best as possible. So I'm a level one half elf bard. Because I was a marching band at the time. Oh, nice. What did you play? Nerd. All the saxophones. Do you want to fight, kid? I, I play saxophone. saxophone. Yes. No. Oh, no. No. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> no. All three of you played saxophone? Yeah. No. <laughs> and you were in marching band too, weren't you? Yeah, but I played the most. Oh, come on. Okay, I failed to play uh, tromb oh, trumpet and cello. Within a week, I was kicked out of both, and that was the end of all of my musical career. It's for the best. Michael, how were you first introduced to Dungeons & Dragons? Well, I actually come from the Kadar of America, otherwise known as Oklahoma. <laughs> and, um, it totally is, though. So it was very difficult to find anybody to play Dungeons & Dragons with that didn't assume that I was a heretic, or even like admitting that that's just something I wanted to do. Um, but you know, I did find some people who you know, couldn't possibly tell their parents that they were involved in sight and worship. And, um, but, uh, as it was bring called, that yeah. accent into the game. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not doing accents with this. I did lots of accents in previous games, but this one I'm keeping very, you know. Tremendous. In your vampire, actually, we're going to talk about that, but in this vampire uh, game, it got to the point where he didn't say who someone was. He just spoke. And we instantly knew who that, who that character was, because every single character had such a unique voice and personality. It was an amazing campaign. I honestly wish we had recorded it. Yeah, it would have been great. But, uh, no. um, so, uh, I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons, you know, my, my whole life off and on, but not, there were large stretches of time where I didn't, but uh, I started playing with Aram as well. Like, we had been friends from, like, high school age on, and uh, when I moved up here to the D.C. area uh, when I was about 16. To a knee. Yes, 2ND, finally. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, it was very much this whole idea I'm playing in with my character. Can I jump in for one second? I want to look I want to look this up, but to absolutely make sure the film Footloose is loosely based on events that took place in the small rural and religious community of Elmore City, Oklahoma. I didn't come from Elmore City, I came from Asia. You are literally yeah. from Footloose. You yes. are from you the movie are Footloose. Footloose. <laughs> yeah, so I'm definitely playing with that with Zion and, and uh, that's definitely what my experience was. Anyway, so I moved up here to DC, and, and uh, Ron and I, uh, at some point, played. Uh, I played in one of his campaigns, oh. which didn't end well. Michael and I were involved in a campaign that went unbelievably poorly. I lost friends over it. I lost the everyone except Michael <laughs> over it. I stuck by him through the years. Yeah, and that was my last campaign. That was over 10 years ago. Yeah, more was, than that, I think. It was well Your over last 10 campaign years that ago. you have run, not yeah, just the, one that you participated in. Right? No, 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 no. The because last one I definitely participated in was, was my game, yeah. which was uh, the Vampire the Masquerade game, and that ran for seven years. That ended really? about for yeah. reals. Yeah, for reals. Yeah. It ended for about seven years. real years. Yeah, and like yeah, we had big message twice. boards and lots of lots of uh, <laughs> art that we did for it, probably out there in the ether somewhere. Uh, oh wait, I've got I've still got the uh, cartoon panels I right. designed yeah, with Vin panels. with Vin Diesel as Jacob. Right, right, right. And so, uh, <laughs> it was a fun game. I had a really great time, and Ron was in it, and so was Doug, and uh, lots of other people played throughout the years. Probably 
10 people played this game at some point. Yeah. Um, that was one of the more traditional Because unlike this, where literally we, we can't play the game unless everyone's here, in a lot of role-playing games, people come and go. You know, people move, people leave, and you just add new characters in and rotate characters out. Here, it's the same cast. Yeah. Right. Well, so far, I mean, it, it, it so, could be so that one of us dies, you know, right. and because, you know, I have to move to New York or something, yeah, like, who knows? I will fucking kill you. Aram <laughs> uh, and I have been talking about God's Fall for three years, probably, um, and about, you know, the idea of building a D&D game with, without, uh, where the gods had died and magic was dead from the world. I didn't know if this game was actually going to happen or not, but I was ready to play it if it ever did. And I'm glad It did take a while. It did take a while. It was like three years. But, um, but I'm glad uh, you know, he took time with it and I enjoy playing now. Well, my question is, so you discussed this being, uh, you know, magic is dead, blah, blah, blah. The reason that you did that is a frustration with people being able to wander in and sort of solve any problem with magic. Basically use the Dungeon Master's Guide as a shopping list. Yes, I was very frustrated. So, again, having no point of comparison, how does this differ? Because it seems that magic did get introduced fairly early. Was it introduced earlier than you had anticipated? And it does seem like we end up solving or creating um, a lot of problems with magic. This is the, actually, someone mentioned this exact point, so it's perfect that you brought this up, but someone said that they came into this world because what I set up, they expected to be very gritty, very low magic, and it turns out to be this incredibly high magic world. In fact, you guys have powers beyond what you would normally have as characters because you have superpowers on top of your powers, and your powers are maximized because you can pick whatever spells you want. I mean, really, it is a high-powered game, but it gives me some control because it turns magic into a commodity because, yes, you have all the power you have at your level, but you can't run to a 20th level cleric who exists. Magic has now become a commodity because in the old game, what someone could do is be like, oh, well, let's just go to a higher level cleric. Even though we're only third level, there's a 13th level cleric in this world because magic exists, because magic is ever present. Oh, let's just let them solve this problem. We've hey, gained well, you're up. Exactly. And I want to limit that. So because I've basically retconned and reset all magic to your levels at third level. This is what you can do. This is fourth level, what you can do. The whole world set to there. So you can never do beyond yourself. So I always have control. It's, it's always a, a commodity that I can write for. So it has real impact in the world. Whereas, and that's the other thing. There's always going to be something more powerful. So you never feel special. And I wanted this game to be you guys are the main stars. You are the new gods. And I had to kill everything in order for that to happen. How do you guys stay in character so well? Michael, how do you stay um, in character so well? Well, my character isn't very complex. I mean, like, he's very, I'm just using my voice. And I think I just play myself, but more like being more worried about things, I think, than I normally would be. But it's a scary world, so it's pretty easy to, to, to get worried. And to, I just try to stay as intense as I can. But, you know, I, my character isn't that difficult. Uh, mine is uh, three-part. I was in drama in high school. <laughs> I just played characters. That was never an issue for me. Uh, two, I'm basing the character of an extremely an extremely popular character from an anime, and that's all I'm going to say about that. And three, uh, liquor. <laughs> uh, all right. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll second the point of alcohol for, for Torvik. Um, Surprisingly. Yeah, it does, <laughs> it does help a lot. I base it off a lot of my own life and how I would react to situations with a few little extreme drug problems that I, I don't currently have, but Torvik 
may or may not have. The hardest thing for me is I, I really wanted to do this accent. And I feel like I'm failing at it horribly. Really? Because I've, yeah. I've actually commented, I'm like, that is like his accent is so good. Like We have all talked that? about this no, individually without you. Yeah. Okay, Every yeah, single yeah, yeah. one of us has said we can't believe how good your accent is. Yeah. Okay. Every single I'm, person online has said we can't believe how... Yeah. I'm shocked you believe that because it's the complete well, opposite. it's my own self-consciousness. Because we have a lot of outside of the United States listeners. Totally. And someone's going to go... Is he doing Scottish? Is he doing Irish? Is he doing, what the fuck is he doing? Fair he's enough. Doing he's doing Dwarven. He's doing Dwarven. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what I'm trying. You know, no, I'm, no. I'm, I'm trying to do it's that. It's completely but. convincing. You fall into it with such a natural grace. Like you will answer a question instantly from Stephen Hutorvik without hesitation whatsoever. Okay. No, it's completely just, convincing. Really, well, I mean, alcohol really helps with that. If you notice in the beginning episodes, it's a little slower, and then as I start imbibing more alcohol, it's. It, it becomes a lot more because that's how I actually talk in real life, you know. When I'm not, you know, <laughs> right, right. How, how that's your original accent. Yeah, that's my natural. How hilarious would that be? That'd but be amazing. Uh, other than that, I just it's free form and just basing off how I would actually react if I was in this universe. Well, I think for me, one. Um, I mean, I don't really do an accent because I couldn't do it. It would be wretched. The voice that I adopt on the podcast generally, which also plays the character, is actually different than how I sound yes. mm -hmm. in real life. Yeah. Um, so I am cognizant, I guess, of the mics. All of this, even out of character, there still feels a bit of a performative aspect to sure. me. Um, because again, I'm just very conscious of the presence of the microphones, which is actually something I, I think I talked to you about generally, that this, I think, plays out different and I suspect, at least for me, I know it's true, I don't know about for you guys, um, the choices I make are constrained by the microphone. I yes. might make different choices. I might um, try wackier things um, if, if I weren't aware if of the mics. No, yeah. yeah, I would say that the microphones, I think all of us are affected by the microphones. Actually, at least the knowledge of an audience affects how we all play. Would you guys agree with that? Not really. No? I totally yeah. forget about them. As soon as I get into it, because you're yeah. such a good storyteller, and your, your DMing is so good that I, my, my goal for this was just to lose myself in it. And you, you make it very, very easy to lose myself in it. So I, you know, every now and then, I'll, if I, especially if I bump into the microphone, I'll, you know, it'll remind me that we're, you know, we have tons of fans and it's, you know, overwhelming. And then I shut down for a couple seconds. But other than that, it's I, I totally forget that they're here. I'm the same way, honestly. I I forget we're recording. I, yeah. I'm not even here when we're playing. I'm Doro not. I'm not. You know what I mean? Doro not wouldn't care if he's being recorded. So you don't care if you're no. being recorded, right? No. no, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So your character kind of takes on the personality of who you're being at the moment. Yeah, I don't really think about the microphones very often. I mean, I think about it because of my voice, and I want to be heard, and I have a very soft voice in comparison, so I have to speak up a bit. But um, other than that, no, I, I, I enjoy your storytelling, and I just sort of fall into the world, and I trust you as an editor, and there you go. So, how were you introduced to D&D? Uh, the first time I ever played D&D was because my babysitter, Lowell, was looking for something to occupy my brother and I. And he had the red box. I, I'm pretty sure it was a red box. I don't think it was the first edition book. I think it was the red box. Because I, rem I, re I remember 
the ones after that, the gold box and everything else. So it must have been the red box. I remember that I loved the game, but I really enjoyed the character creation aspect. And the first time he babysat, I made a wizard. And then in between the time we saw him next, I had got my hands on the books and I'd made like a, three more characters. <laughs> and so I came back to with the whole party and he was not ready for it. But I think, I, I think right there is when I fell in love with Dungeons and Dragons, but I also fell in love with the idea of being a DM. How long did it take for you to create God's Fall? Uh, well, the idea has been knocking around for about three years. Uh, I began seriously writing roughly six months ago. You liken God's Fall to superheroes a lot. So does that mean you are a huge comic book fan? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of gay men my age were raised on uh, X-Men comics and saw mutant abilities and the way that society viewed them as kind of an analogy for hiding your sexuality and uh, the troubles that can come with coming out. And aside from that, I was just a big geek who wanted to have powers like everyone. So I was into tons of different superhero comics. And there are analogies for superheroes all throughout my game. Uh, the God King was a Superman stand-in. The Elven Archer Adamil, I was like, well, what if you combine Flash and the Arrow into one person? And you will see continuous uh, reflections and callbacks uh, to tons of different pop culture, sci-fi, fantasy. Uh, anything from Secret Nim on is, <laughs> is basically in my wheelhouse. Was killed today while helping with the plan. Did you set your pantheon in stone early on, or did you develop them to match the general story you wanted to tell? Uh, the pantheon was kind of forged with me, just like I knew what the four original gods were and how they were formed. And then I knew that I wanted the moon and the sun and death and life to be on the next level. And so once I started drawing lines, I'm like, okay, these two got it on and these two got it on and that's why they birthed these. And okay, logically, this kind of makes sense. So then I just went nuts with it and I branched the tree out until I had what I felt were enough gods to really tell a long arc story and also to represent all of the powers that I wanted to because basically each character represents a certain type of superpower, certain traditionally told about, talked about, used super ability and I wanted to kind of stretch those out into godlike powers and I need a lot of them in order to tell a long story. So that was the process. They were really kind of born on their own and then I've adapted them into the story. I've really adapted the story more for them than the other way around. Can you talk about your process for how you design the PC's divinity powers or how you balance them with each other and with the game in general? How did you avoid the trap of giving the characters abilities that overpowered the game or were unbalanced with each other? Well, I look at it this way. I have no idea. I mean, I, I have said this before. I am much more about story than I am about rules and math and balance. I am not good at that and I, I will compensate in other ways. Fortunately, uh, my characters are very heavily story influence, so it's a lot easier to get away with it. And also, I mean, even if it is a little unbalanced, there are 36 old gods, not including Zavon. If you count the players, Para, and assuming Adamil's on their side, that's only six of them. So even if they're not balanced, I can just throw someone more powerful at them who's got some other ability. Or I can throw a team of people at them who have other abilities. Even if it gets wildly out of balance, there's always a way for me to throw a bigger bat at them.
The question posed from the podcast audience is how does Doro not feel about being the de facto teacher for the rest of the players for their divinities? Honestly, the way it's, it's kind of falling into place is that he doesn't, I mean, that's not even what, how he considers it. How about that? He, he doesn't even realize that it's a title or a position or a, a thing a fulfillment that he has to do. It's just, he's doing this because in the end, it'll end up protecting everyone, which is what he wants is his, is he doesn't want any more of his friends to be hurt by helping them control the things that clearly other people can't even do, they'll be able to save themselves when he can't do it all the time. And besides, it, it's easier to hide <laughs> in a group like this, instead of being the one person that can teleport in a giant group of people who can't do anything. Might as well get all of them on your same level. Right. Why is Doro so lame and everyone hates him? Because this is the opposite world and that means he's awesome. Right. Here's like. Here's what people want to know. Fuck. <laughs> the they want to know how to fuck. <laughs> Doro not cannot teach you to reproduce. Do you, want, do you remember what the question was? No. Fuck. Yeah. Are, do you have any memorable RPG moments? Okay. Uh, yes. In particular, and oddly enough, the campaign you, Aram, ran uh, back in Philly, but like four years ago five longer than that something i i don't know uh a while ago <laughs> and uh in this campaign i finally got up the nerve to play the guy who gets in the front uh for the first time but i knew i didn't want to play someone with plate mail and a shield and something along those lines i thought that was boring so I played with the idea of like a, a Rastafarian Bruce Lee type of thing. Oh, right. Yeah, remember? Right. Uh, his name was Malaman Ghent. Right. And uh, he, was the, he was the front guy for a while. And it was so much fun. Yeah. Because I hate to use the term tanking, but tanking became very easy and fluid because I could move between targets. And because I was jumping around battle so much, almost always I was getting all the attention anyway. So it was like it was working. Even when you would throw crazy things like, what was that? It was, it turned people into it and it lived in the woods and it was, it was like a Yeti or something, but it wasn't a Yeti. Because it was the evil version of Yetis in the woods. Wow, do I remember? Do I remember absolutely none of that, unfortunately? God, but I do. Because it would turn people into what it was. And it was like. Did I just make that up? No. No, no, no. It's a folklore thing. I think it's like a part of Stephen King culture, too. It's possible. I can't possible. remember what it's you called. Know, you know what I do remember about that? The main thing I remember about that is that. It forced me under the, the, the 3.5 rules to really understand grappling because your motherfucking monk <laughs> would just grapple every goddamn thing that was large and under. Uh, that was, and that was definitely the birth of me understanding how grapple worked and how uh, tumble worked. I did a hilarious amount of tumbling. And honest, honestly, there was like but one time that Malaman uh, critically failed 
and he like, but it worked in his favor because it spread this like oil on a ship all over the ground. Yeah, I remember that. And then he was the only one that could really get around. So it really actually worked out in his favor. If Para was originally supposed to be a player character, and is as important to the narrative as the other four characters, why did he not receive an item from Steelbeard the Treant? You later said that he was completely naked because no one had given him clothes or a weapon. As a DM myself, I believe it is the DM's job, and not the players, to make NPCs feel like fleshed out characters and act like actual people, unless you're playing a shared storytelling game. Para is, with the exception of his divinity, his grief over his losses, and most recently his sexual orientation, basically a two-dimensional character. In such a deep and well-crafted world, I feel like this is a huge oversight. What sort of explanation can you give for the neglect of Para as a character? Respectfully yours, Ben. Yeah, that's completely fair. Uh, yeah, Para had a rough start, and that was my fault. And it was my fault for a couple of reasons. Uh, I didn't plan on playing him. As I said, he was supposed to be a player character that got a little bit of cold feet when they started thinking about the podcast. And that's understandable. It could be a very intimidating thing. But the other part of it is that I am super wary of playing a DM NPC. That's to say, an NPC that basically makes decisions and is a huge part of the story and has major influence on what the characters are doing because you don't want to railroad them into taking the actions that you want them to. You want them to make the story on their own or at least participate in making the story. So I purposely gave Para a backstory where it would be damaging in a way that he could kind of shrink into the background and that the players could help pull him out of. But I think that he's grown into a character that both the audience and the players actually care about. And I think that you'll see a lot more growth in Para in the upcoming episodes. So, you know, in short, uh, my answer would be that it was a lot to juggle. I've never told a story like this before on this kind of scale while considering a podcast audience. So there's going to be some rough edges. And I hope that in the future, my storytelling, our collective storytelling gets smoother and better as we go along. Hi, uh, this is Paul, the DM from Swordnut Radio, the other edited 5e D&D podcast. First off, I absolutely adore Godsfall. It's become my I must listen to this podcast. I, I love the editing style. I love the story that's going on. Uh, and I love what the players are doing with their characters and how they're shaping this world. I, I know firsthand how much work goes into editing an episode of a podcast like this. And it is phenomenal how well this is put together. So I really appreciate that you're taking the time to put this together. So my first question is for Doug. I suppose you'll get a lot of questions about this, but Doro's song, how many takes did that take to do? Or did you just do it all in one? Uh, that was absolutely one take. Uh, in fact, when I did it, it's because one of our players wouldn't stop trying to interrupt me and she kept trying to get on stage and stop me and say things and stuff. And I just wanted to perform the whole song. Uh, I had heard a long time ago that he was going to do this festival or something. And I had rapid fired, asked him a bunch of questions about it just to try and shake him. Because that's how you defeat a rom. And uh, I was like, you know, what kind of food? What kind of games? 
And then at one point I was like, is there a singing contest? Because I was getting more and more ridiculous. And he actually said yes. And my eyes lit up and I said, I'm going to remember that. And ever since then, as he was starting to reveal more and more about this festival that was coming up, and then it was eventually a turtle festival, and that eventually be in Turtle Bay, and that eventually blah, 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 blah. Uh, I said, you know what? I'm going to... <laughs> I'm going to derail his festival and I'm going to enter this song competition without anyone's knowledge and I'm going to blow everyone away and uh, destroy all of our safety at the same time. So I sat down and whenever, you know how people will make up songs? Whenever people do this, I tend to do it to this song. This, what is it, some telephone operator? I yeah. can't remember how. Give me number nine. That's it. Give me number nine. So I, I don't know why I do that. I just do it automatically. So I started writing down all the stuff that I knew our party wouldn't want other people to know. And I started it all from Doro's perspective and I started right at Port Bliss and went on from there. I constructed it in a chronological order and then I made it rhyme through the song that I was putting it over the top and I wrote it all down. I started doing it. I got into like the second stanza and then Phryony had to jump up and oh stop the show and everything and i wasn't even even a piece into this song really and she kept wanting to get up on stage and hip check me and stop me and stuff it was just ugh. luckily through the magic of editing uh we ended up at what we ended up by the end of it and it was pretty awesome and i'd say i accomplished exactly what i had set out to do my next question is for all the players in a world that is incredibly detailed and intricate and wide-ranging and you get the feeling this is a very complete world that's that's been written for you to play in how free do you feel to contribute to things and to maybe make some statements that change the world as it's already been conceived at the table all of you at one point or another have contributed something say the name of a thing or a social convention or something that wasn't necessarily pre-written and I'd like to know how that comes about at the table. Is it as free-flowing as it seems? Or is that an editing process where that whole discussion is left on the cutting room floor? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, but that's... I feel like you and Michael, or Zion, or whatever, um, you both run games sort of under the same kind of light. Uh, certain, th you know, role-playing is always given more leeway as opposed to action and stuff like that. And... I often find in these worlds that the more you, in fact, contribute to them, the better the game gets. Uh, this is actually the first time, though, that I was, like, entering one of these two gentlemen's games and thinking, I want to destroy everything! I actually, at one point, had started discussing with Aram fleshing out my Thieves' Guild. Uh, it didn't happen, obviously, because they got wiped out, for one. Uh, and... <laughs> For two, apparently we weren't that well established to begin with, so it didn't really make any sense. Um, but he, I, I mean, even though he knew that was going to happen, I think, uh, he was totally open to it. He was like, yeah, right, whatever, you know, do what you want to, even though I'm just going to, I guess, throw it in the trash. Uh, but, kill all of them. right, even though I was just going to have them all murdered, like Man, a coward. That's okay with that. You know. <laughs> y yeah, you, we've always had, like, a little bit of an open license to add and contribute to the world that we're existing in. I mean, we do it just by having these powers to begin with. We're kind of becoming 
like core iconic things in the storyline to a certain degree because we're setting you know the trail for how all this stuff, type of stuff happens i i mean i don't the problem is with this question is i don't spend a lot of time thinking about ways to build up this game as much as I do finding ways to destroy yeah. it slowly. Yeah, basically. So, so to toss it into chaos. That's right, right. Yeah. I mean, I'm adding in the same way that you add fire to a building. I mean, yeah, that is added. So, you know, I'm transforming the wood into ash. We're adding 12 cats to a bathtub, you know. Right, yeah. right, exactly. And my last question is... I'm a podcaster, you're podcasters, and I listen to podcasts, and I've, I've taken to listening to God's Fall religiously. I also listen to Knights of the Night, Going In Blind, The Rusak Gamers, and Cthulhu and Friends. And I was wondering, do you listen to other podcasts, and if so, what do you like? What floats your boat? Beyond ours, I've listened to basically all of them. I don't get very deep into many of them because I was never a podcast person. I'm the type of person that downloads an album of a song and listens to that album about 78 times before I stop listening to it. But I will say this, I, as of today, I'm up to episode 12 of Cthulhu and Friends. And I don't, I mean, yesterday I literally sat in front of my computer for like four hours and just listened to it. I wasn't like, doing something or fixing something or eating or or cleaning or doing anything i literally sat in front of my computer with my headphones on looking at itunes watching it play call of cthulhu friends and thinking about everything that was happening in the characters and where is this going and stuff like that i am in love with this show in love with it um, it's depressing that everyone is destined to go crazy or die so don't really feel a lot of investment in characters you know? So that's your favorite? By far. By far. Cthulhu and Friends. And if you're not listening to it, you will. I have harnessed the shadows that stride from world to world to sow death and madness. How different is the world of God's Fall now from the time you first imagined it? What changed from God's Fall first draft to the world we see now? Honestly, really minor things. I mean, it kept evolving, but it's been on one fairly clear path since I first came up with it. What process or system do you prefer for any notes you use to run the story? Do you have it all written out or just a rough outline? Uh, the way that I write is that, well, the first thing I do is that I make a map. And I keep adding detail and detail and detail in the map. And that pretty much informs a lot of how these countries will react with each other. It can inform their hist their history and how they've been damaged and how they've recovered and what their resources are and how powerful they are and how populous they are. And then a lot of that starts to just inform story. But the way that I write and the way that you have to write when it's a game, when you have four other people who can drastically influence the outcome, is that I write powerful NPCs that have influence in these worlds and who will act when knowledge of these players exist. I write what they'll do over months and years, you know, how they will act. And then once the players do things, it can bounce into them, they can redirect them, it can influence how these NPCs are going to act. But if they're not, they'll just keep going. So that allows me to fill in the backstory as the characters are acting without feeling like I'm writing in direct response for them because all my NPCs already have motive and actions they're going to take. 
That said, many things the characters do will just inspire brand new things on the spot. For instance, oinkers. No plan for a little piglet to, you know, to accommodate the party, but there you go. So that's written in. Uh, another good example would be Phryne's father. Um, I planned for him to be far more approachable, loving, you know, more of, you know, more of a caring individual than he was. But some of the actions that she took as her character that were pretty, I felt kind of cold at times, kind of influenced how the father acted and how he was going to be, because, you know, someone had to be responsible for that and for all that, in, you know, entitled it. Are there any memorable moments you'd want to talk about from a past RPG session? This is my best gaming moment ever. I played in a D&D game with a dungeon master named Al. And Al was crazy. Al had just binders and binders of material about his worlds and hard disks and disks of material. I mean, he just, he must have been playing this thing for years. It's way, way, way more detailed than anything I have ever attempted to do. Far more detailed than God's Fall. And I was playing a dwarven paladin, a very aggressive dwarven a paladin. And we had been in a mine for some reason. I think we had gotten control of it because we chased orcs out of it. And therefore we were, we, were, we were able to mine there. And so we were taking out a load of silver ore and we came across this white sphere, like a pearl, like a huge pearl, but it was lighter than a pearl that size should have been. And when you put your hand against the outside of it, it pulsed cold, like a regular, like thum, thum, cold. And we were fascinated with it, so we, you know, we tossed it in the wagon and we took it out with us. And as we were going, it began to like shudder. And the party wanted to like, you know, just hit it and break it open, but my character was like, no, 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 let's just hang on. And we watched and all of a sudden it cracks open and a baby white dragon pops out. And we're all just stunned. And the thing like coughs a few snowflakes at the ranger, hits him for like a couple points of damage. And then just immediately takes off and, you know, into the air. And they all start to pull up bows and everything. And I think the DM was like, okay, this is going to be a quirky little combat encounter. And then we're going to go on. But my character's like, no. And he throws himself in front of everyone. like, please, please, don't, don't. And he turns and he starts to talk the baby white dragon down. And Al's like, okay, he, he was, he's fed up with it. You can tell that he is completely done with this whole situation. So he looks at me and he's like, fine, roll a D100, and if you get a hundred, then you succeed. So I grabbed him and I shook, 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 shook. And I rolled a hundred. And I must, I don't know what the noise that came out of me was, but it was, it was so incredibly joyful. Al looked so deflated and the dragon landed at my dwarf's feet and boom, we had a dragon. We had a little baby evil white dragon and it was awesome. That remains the best gaming moment I have ever had. What's been the most unexpected part of making a popular podcast that you've run into so far? 
I think the most unexpected part is that it was popular fast. <laughs> Honestly, that was it. I had absolutely no plans whatsoever to be editing on this schedule at this point. I figured we'd get the whole first season done, and then maybe we would get some pickup going into season two. But that is not all how it has worked out. So I guess the thing that I wasn't prepared for was how much editing I would have to be doing and how punishing that editing a schedule is, which is why we're going to take another break, by the way, after season one, so I can get ahead finally. Just, you know, be prepared for that. But yeah, that's the thing I'm most surprised by, how hard it has been to get all the editing done. Does Torvik have any plans for Oinkers to become his giant warhog mount to ride into battle like a badass? Please tell me yes. Well, Torvik may not have any plans for that to happen because Torvik doesn't fully understand what Oinkers is yet. But let's just say I may have some plans for that exact thing to happen. But I don't want to give away too much, so that's all I'm going to say. Was the wedding recorded before or after the Supreme Court ruling? It was recorded before the Supreme Court ruling. That actually worked out really nicely. Uh, we did not plan for that whatsoever. The timing was just beautiful. And Michael actually works for the Washington Blade, which is the national gay newspaper of record in the U.S. So he was down there at the Supreme Court basically every day. So it was a really neat thing to see our storyline kind of beautifully coincide with that amazing and wonderful moment. Most of the RP podcasts I've found are super brotastic, but you've managed to break the mold over and over again. Have you considered renaming the show Friday vs. the Patriarchy? I have not. However, it is pretty much all I thought about since I read this question. We've had a large response, particularly from women, who have thanked us for our stance on, I guess, thinking women are people. It, it, I don't fully understand it. It seems like the most ridiculous thing to me. We had a five-minute conversation about you know, how women are very clearly stereotyped in gaming, and people just flip the hell out. So I don't know. It, it, it makes no sense to me. It's difficult for me to comprehend why that would upset people, why people just wouldn't be like, oh, well, that's interesting. And then just at the, at the very least, just being neutral about it. So I don't feel like we're at the edge or the promote. I don't feel like we're fighting for anything. I just feel like we're telling a story as people. These are the people I know. This is how we interact with each other. So I am thrilled that people have reacted so strongly and that people th have found uh, it's a sort of like, you know, safe place for them to explore a story with us. But to me, this just feels like, you know, how the world should be. And, you know, if nothing else, it's fantasy. So why the fuck not? I'm just going to tell the story I want to tell. Are the... <laughs> Are the dice rolls we hear really real? Uh, some of them. Some of the dice rolls you hear are real. A lot of them are just caught nicely on the microphones and no one's talking while the dice are rolling. But many of them, that does not happen. Either you don't pick up the dice at, at all because they land on a clipboard or someone's talking over them or whatever. You just don't hear the dice cleanly. So because I'm insane, I set up a mic and just rolled 
you know, one dice at a time, two dice at a time, a bunch of dice at a time. So I have all these clean recordings of dice that I will methodically splice in if I need a transition point or if you haven't heard the dice roll. Because I like, you know, the one of the things about this podcast is that it's not just a story, it's D&D. We're playing a game and the dice are vital to that game. They make decisions for the story and it's important that we hear them. So If I didn't feel like it was clean enough, I will gladly edit them in. And that's not the only thing I could in. I will do whole entire descriptions over as voiceovers. I will read them over because maybe in game they weren't quite as clear as I wanted them to be or I stumbled over something or I forgot something. And while that's okay for my players because they're looking at maps and there's a lot more information that we can share together, the podcast audience needs a much clearer description of what's going on. Any hints for what we can expect in season two? Well, again, I mean, it's difficult to look too far into the future because I don't know 100% what's going to happen. But as far as story ideas, let's just say that in season two, the world's about to get a whole lot bigger. Thank you for joining God's Fall for our first mailbag episode. I hope you all had as much fun listening to that as I did writing it and editing it. It was an amazing series of questions, and you all are seriously the best fans anyone could possibly hope for. Next week, we're going to be back with another one of our all-play sessions, and it looks like I'm going to have enough content to get me through the end of Season 1. So again, thank you all so much for the help. You really saved our necks here. And we're going to leave you with a few more comments from Swordnut Radio. Did you do editing? I don't know if anyone likes editing. I've recorded a few questions, and I'll put in some like stock responses as well that you can splice in to make it seem maybe more like a conversation. And now for the stock responses. I see no way this could ever come back to haunt me. Hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. (gasps) Never. (gasps) You mean the butler did it? Hmm. Hmm. Ah. Ah. All right. I'm shocked. Actually, I'm slightly disappointed. That was a horrible answer. Thanks. Thanks, that's interesting. (gasps) How dare you? Nice. Alright, there you go. Hopefully you can cobble together something vaguely entertaining out of that. Cheers, dude. Bye now.